good singing. You may be seated. Amen. What a beautiful. Zach was right. It's an old one, but a good one. And one that we can be reminded of. Take your Bibles this evening and turn with me to Luke chapter number 22. The last time that we had a communion service, Brother Mike had preached. He preached on aliens. Not the kind you're thinking of, but those who are alienated from the life of Christ there in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read here in Luke chapter 22, then we're going to turn over, as we have the other two times this year in communion, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in verses 23 through 26. The Bible says this in Luke 22 and verse 14, And when the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Think of that thought just alone. Jesus Christ desires to commune with his own. What a joy. For I say unto you, I will not eat any more thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God. Shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and brake it and gave it unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. Take your Bibles and turn over then with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Passage in Luke and the other gospel accounts, we have what is called the Lord's Supper, or excuse me, the Last Supper. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we find the ordinance and the practice of the uh, the Lord's Supper. I'll get it straight eventually. The Lord's Supper that we participate in here as a church. You say, aren't they one and the same? One is setting forward the pattern or what he wants his church to do. And here the Apostle Paul gives to us, how we as a body in an ordinance participate in communion together. He says, beginning in verse 23, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. In other words, Paul is saying, I am sharing with you what was shared with me. That the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye, as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show or demonstrate, manifest outwardly the Lord's death till he come. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll jump into looking at the atoning work of Christ this evening. Father, help us as we look into the Word of God that we may be established by it, as we heard preached so well this morning, so that we can run and faint not, so that we can endure the difficulties and enjoy the successes. God, this evening we come to the Word of God and pray that it not only establishes us, but that it affects us. 
that it would affect change in our lives. When we remember your son's death, we remember the great cost of sin, the great price that was paid for us. So, Father, tonight as we come to these two passages and many others that we'll turn to this evening, help us to see what Christ did for us in dying. He is our atonement. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Tonight, we remember the Lord's death. We remember in His message, Christ to His apostles said that they were to take the bread and take the cup and commemorate or remember Him until He returned. Aren't we looking forward to the day that Christ returns? We look around the world, we look often in our own homes, we experience the suffering in this life, the difficulties that, we, that beset each of us, and we long for the return of Jesus. Jesus said the one thing we ought to do until He returns is remember that He died for us. In our passage in 1 Corinthians, Paul taught these Corinthians this truth as well. The process of remembering is important in the Christian life. So often, we like sheep are so forgetful of the dangers that exist all around us. We have studied so far in this pattern in communion this year, the concept of grace and the concept of redemption. We will still yet study the concept of reconciliation, but tonight I want us to look at atonement. The word atonement is the divine concept of Christ's death and what it means for us. Christ's earthly life, His sinless act of obedience, we might call it, is what qualifies Him to be the perfect sacrifice and thus atone for the sins of Adam and Adam's race. Christ's resurrection, as we wonderfully heard this morning, is the demonstration of God's acceptance of the sacrifice. That He was risen is proof that the Father accepted the offering from Jesus Christ. Romans 4 and verse 24 says that Jesus was raised to life for our justification. Atonement, however, comes solely from His death. And that's what we must understand this evening Atone in the Hebrew language, especially of the Old Testament, is from a Hebrew word uh, that sounds like this, kapar. It means to cover, to remove, to wipe out, to appease, to make amends, to redeem, to ransom, to forgive, to avert or divert wrath that is intended for one. I love the fact that our Old English word, atonement, in its etymology, comes from an old Anglo-Saxon word, one-ment. When we say atonement, what we are saying is, we are at one-ment with God. That's what it means to be atoned. We are at unity with Him. It is through Christ's sacrificial death that mankind can be at one-ment with God once again. If Christ had not died, we would of all men be most miserable. Just like Paul said, we would be most miserable had he not been raised from the dead. There would be no resurrection if there was no wrath poured out upon him in his death. And so this evening, I want us to look at atonement. Let's begin by seeing the pattern for atonement. We're going to do a lot of turning tonight. I'll put some of the verses on the board But I want you to see your Bible and use it. Go back to Leviticus chapter number 16. It is not the first mention of atonement 
But it is the clearest on that great day of atonement or the teaching for it. The pattern of atonement actually began in the garden in Genesis 3 and verse 21 with the animal coverings that replaced Adam's plant coverings. You recall that Adam in his handiwork had covered himself with his own efforts. That did not appease God. Only the shedding of blood would appease God. In Genesis chapter 4, we find that Abel's offering was a blood offering, a proper atonement, while Cain, his brother, brought forth in the fashion of his own sinful father the work of his hands, that which was grown from the ground. It was own handiwork he tried to offer to God. And God says, no, that is not going to appease me. That brings no atonement. It was not accepted For our efforts as a human being, as a fallen within the race of Adam, cannot please God by our own efforts. God set a clear pattern for us in atonement, in the day of atonement, found in Leviticus 16. We find here in verse number 2 of Leviticus 16 that first God is unapproachable by man. Here's what Moses is told. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother that he come not at all times into the holy place, within the veil, before the mercy seat. Boy, these are going to be instructive by the time we're done tonight. But that mercy seat, that place of the offering that it's going to become known as, that place or that seat that covered the Ark of the Covenant within the Holy of Holies, within the tabernacle and then within the temple, is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in his body. And so God says to Moses here, Don't come at any time, at all times. There's never an acceptable time for you to come in within that place, which is upon the ark, that he die not, for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. How does God come to us? He is appeased when we offer to him properly. When that which is right is offered to him. The second thing we learn in the, in the chapter uh, on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 that helps us understand this concept tonight is in verse number 6. Look down there with me. The Bible says in Leviticus 16 and verse 6, And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself. This is the first use of the word, and for his house we find that the blood sacrifice was the required appeasement that was needed to take place. It started with Aaron offering for himself, but then it went beyond that. In fact, we find that in the process of bringing the sacrifice, bringing the atonement, bringing that blood offering to Jesus or to God, I should say, so that we might have an appeasement and an audience with him, it was always preceded by prayer. Look in verse 13 of chapter 16. The Bible says, and he He shall put in in the incense upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony, that he, Aaron, die not. What a thought. We are told in the book of Hebrews that we now as believers in this age, in the age of grace, can come boldly before the throne of grace. Why? In our prayers. Because the atoning sacrifice has been made. There's a procession. There is a preceding of us of prayers. The incense were offered up. Those are the prayers of the saints we learn in the New Testament. That's what they were symbolizing here in this day of atonement. I think the fourth 
fourth thing that we can find in this pattern for atonement is this. The atoning sacrifice must be placed upon the mercy seat. Look in verse number 14. The Bible says, And he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. It's complete. It is personal for him as he enters with his sacrifice. And if you go down to verses 16 and 17, it's also corporate. Here's what the Bible says. He shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgression and all their sins. And so shall he, this is the high priest, do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household, and for all the congregation of Israel. This was a serious matter. Dwight Pentecost, in his book, Things That Become Sound Doctrine, speaking of this concept of atonement, says this, God commanded the blood to be applied to the mercy seat so that the God who must be, and I'm going to use a word here that we're going to define in a moment, propitiated, could look upon the broken law contained under and within the Ark of the Covenant, and he could therefore, through the atoning work of the blood, be merciful to men. You want God's mercy? You have to understand what was done for you on Calvary. This is how atonement or at-one-ment is achieved. God sets the pattern for He designed the plan of restoration for our race. God is the one, therefore, who must be propitiated because of sin. Gratefully, He's devised a pattern. He's devised the place, and He devised the person of atonement, and that is Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17 says, Wherefore, in all things it behooved Him to be made like unto His brethren, that is, Jesus, like us, that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Hebrews 7 and verse 27, For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Hallelujah. Who needeth not daily as those priests to offer up sacrifice for his own sins and then for the people's, as we just read in Leviticus 16, for this he did once when he offered up himself. And then one more time in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 24, the Bible says, And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, just in case we forget that the offering of Abel was a blood sacrifice which appeased God in his wrath. There, if it was at the gates of the Garden of Eden, and Cain's did not, he said, That speaketh better things than that of Abel. Just in case we thought he was only the atonement matched in the law, he is the atonement for all mankind. When we talk about atonement or the atoning work of Christ, we must consider the word that we read, and that is propitiation. So a second thought tonight is not just the pattern for atonement, but the propitiation in atonement. Now, that's a redundancy, by the way. To propitiate and to atone is the same word in the New Testament. I know we've got some Greek nerds in here, and you probably have already figured that out. 
Propitiate in the New Testament, and it's, as it's used in the Greek, means to regain favor by action. And atonement means appeasement through that action. Turn your, in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. I want us to see this so that we understand what we are doing when we take the body and take the blood, when we take the bread and consume the juice, what those symbols stand for, what they are reminding us of. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1, My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, he's the sufficient atonement, not just for your sins. He is the sufficient appeasement for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him, in that person, verily is the love of God perfected, or grown up and mature. Hereby we know that we are in him. He that saith, he abideth in him, ought himself also to walk, even as he, Jesus, walked. What a truth. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is the appeasement. He's the one that satisfies the Father. How is this so? 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Everything that flows after that in chapter 15, which is the longest chapter that Paul wrote, that Matt alluded to this morning, is about the resurrection. But the resurrection is immaterial. It's, it's, it's not even attainable if Christ doesn't first die. The atonement is necessary. Galatians 1 and verse 3, Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who what? Gave himself for our sins. This is the idea of atonement. That he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and of our Father. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Peter echoes what Paul has told us and says this in 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 21. For, unto where, for even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. Notice, who in for who his own self bear our sins in his own body. He became the mercy seat. The sprinkling of the blood literally was him. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness. There's a great concept in that. He goes on and says, By whose stripes ye are healed, for ye were as sheep gone astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. I had a great conversation this week, and those guys that have ever gone through and studied Romans with me will know the poor pain that Ethan is enduring right now. He's coming up on Fridays and studying the book of Romans with me. And we just got through Romans 3 and 4, and we're heading on to 5. And there's a great concept of justification, propitiation, imputation, and sanctification in those chapters. 
And usually they all leave with their eyes crossed. And what they don't know is I have my eyes crossed because there's a lot to keep straight in all of that teaching. The question before us then is, what does propitiate mean? What does it mean to have atonement or to have God's, uh, God appeased towards our sin? There, there's two theological terms, and I'm going to give them to you, and I, I always do this carefully, not because you can't sustain it or learn it. It's I don't want you to get lost in theology. Theology is always practical. But the word propitiate in the original language has two senses to it. It has the idea of expiate. Think of the word exit. It's leaving. And it has the word propiate or bring something into. So we have within this concept of propitiation the removal of something and the imputation or the implanting of something. This is what happens when we receive the atoning work of Jesus Christ. This is what was going on. The process of imputation is found in Romans chapter 3 and in verse 21. Here's what the Bible says there. This is one sentence. It's a Pauline letter. That means it's a long sentence. Good luck diagramming. But here's what it says in verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God without the law is manifest. It's made obvious. Being witnessed by both the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now notice the next sentence, the next verse. Whom God hath set forth. God established that Jesus would be our atonement to be a propitiation through faith in what? His blood. There's the appeasement. The blood of Jesus Christ. And then Paul makes two declarations based upon this fact. To declare his righteousness for the remission or the removal, there's the expiate, of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. The second declaration is to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness. This is the propiation. This is the entrance of the righteousness of Christ. Christ's righteousness could never come into your life if he didn't first remove the sin. But by expiating the sin, he can propiate Christ's righteousness to us. You say, boy, you seem pretty excited about this. Man, if you know the Bible, you get real excited about this. This is what frees you. This is what liberates you. This is why Paul writes in Romans 6 and 7, the life of sanctification doesn't need to be confusing. It needs to be liberating. Because sin has been removed through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. The process of this propitiation, if you will, unfolds through Romans chapters 4 and 5. And it is in this developing process. You can see it most clearly in Romans 5 and verse 12. If you know the book of Romans, Romans 5 beginning in verse 13 down through verse 17 is a parenthetical statement. It's wonderful context and gives wonderful direction. And I'm certainly not dismissing that part of the Bible, but I'm going to read the verses that are the main thought of Paul in Romans chapter 5. Here's what he says in verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Therefore, verse 18... As by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to what? Condemnation. Even so, the righteousness of the one, excuse me, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Here's what I want you to do. If you can in your mind or on a piece of paper, 
You should write these three thoughts when we come to this idea of the atoning work of Christ as it applies to the propitiation that we read about in the Word of God. That is this, the negative. You say, the negative? What's the negative? Can I tell you, when Adam sinned, when Adam engaged in sin, Christ impu- or God excuse me, imputed death to all men. Why is there death in this world? I'm often asked as a pastor, and the answer is because Adam sinned, not because God designed it. It was never God's desire for man to ever die. So the negative thought of this is you and I have assigned to us Adam's death. In Adam, we all die, he goes on to say in Romans 5. There is, after the negative, the neutral. This is the beauty of what propitiation does for us. He can take away our sin. He can expiate our sin in the neutral. The Bible says Christ died for the unrighteous. He died for the ungodly in another place in the Word of God. Christ died for the sins of mankind, the Bible tells us. In other words, He chose to be the offered sacrifice for that death. And any of us who's known or tasted death can take great joy that Christ tasted death for us. There is the negative, there is the neutral. In the third column, this is almost like, for you accounting nerds out there, a balance sheet. It's not just that he canceled our debt with his death. It's that he also gives to us places within us, imputes within us righteousness. By faith in his blood, the Bible tells us, we have the righteousness of Christ. Listen, you will never sin openly and wantonly if you keep track of this. You deserved death, the negative. It was imparted to you. It was given to you. It was placed upon you. But Christ suffered it for you, so why would you ever sin again? That's what Paul argues. That's Romans. It's the beauty of what Romans teaches us. Friends, Christ died to make atonement for your sins. When you and I actively engage in sinful behavior, we are in effect spitting upon the face of Jesus with those soldiers. I don't look at it that way. Maybe you should start. Boy, to clean up a lot of Christian lives, wouldn't it? That is what we remember when we gather around the table tonight. Oh, it's wonderful for us to sing the goodness of God and the grace that He's given to us. But what we remember is that He died so I don't have to. When a person is saved, they receive eternal life. Oh, their temporal life may end, but eternal life never does. John 10 gives us that wonderful promise that we are held in the hand of our Savior and that hand is held within the hand of His Father. It's an unbreakable bond that He gives to us. Take your Bibles and turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. This idea of propitiation doesn't just have a process to it that we just examined, but there is also a principle within it. Hebrews chapter 10, and we pick up our reading in verse number 10. And if I can, I would say it this way. This is propitiated atonement. I know I'm being redundant. But this is the regained favor through the appeasement. 
that can be found in the new life we have in Christ's death. That's what Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, I should say, is going to tell us here in Hebrews 10 and verse 10. The Bible says, by the which will we were sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, we've dealt with the, the blood, right? When we take the juice, we now know full well what that blood does for us. But here he says what? The body. This is the broken body of Jesus Christ. So he said, and it applies to the blood as well, we're going to read. But the point is, this is where we bring in the connection as to why that last supper led to the Lord's Supper and why this supper is so important for us every time we take it. He says, and every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, This man here is Jesus. After he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Hallelujah. What power. What confidence and understanding. It's divine. From henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. That's you and I. That is not just expiation, it is propiation. You and I are perfected in remembering his broken body and his spilt blood. Wherefore, or whereof, excuse me, verse 15, the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities I will what? Can I, can I tell you a secret tonight? When you remember the Lord's death, you should remember that He doesn't remember your sins anymore. That's what I just said. I'm not a real smart man, but I love reading the Bible because it's infinitely intelligent. An omniscient God wrote it. He says, hey, listen, you remember my death? And I don't remember your sins. That's a pretty good deal. Verse 18, now we're remission of this, of these is, there is no more offering for sin. There's no more need for any other sacrifice. There's nothing you can add to your salvation. What possibly can you add to God dying for your sins? Nothing. The justification you and I have become comes because of his resurrection, and hallelujah for that. But the writer of Hebrews would tell us over and again that the testator in dying closes that old law of atonement through animal sacrifices because a perfect blood sacrifice, a total broken body was offered for us. That's what he says in verse 14 of chapter 10. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. You and I can live in the fullness of Christ's resurrection life because full atonement has been made for you in Christ's death. This is worthy, my friend, of our remembering. What exactly sin cost our Savior? God established a pattern for atonement. He gave to us a propitiated atonement, which, yes, is redundant. But in that we regain favor with God through the act of appeasement in Jesus Christ. It leads, finally this evening, to the prayerful atoned. Take your Bibles and go one more time to another passage in Luke 18.
Luke chapter number 18, Jesus gives the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. And we see in it what our life of prayer should be. In just a few moments, we will bow our heads and we will pray. And some have asked me before, well, why do we do that? Why don't we just take the Lord's Supper? I, I've been in a church that we go up front and take each of it. And every church is allowed to participate in communion or the Lord's Supper in the way that they choose. But why do we do it the way that we do it here? Because there needs to be a spirit of prayer and reflection within that remembrance so that we don't take unworthily if we kept reading in 1 Corinthians 11. Here's the worthy way to take that communion. Beginning in verse 9, And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Now listen, we've just learned that we have the righteousness of Christ propiated to us. There's none, there's none that doeth good. No, not one, he's told us in Romans 3. And despised others. Two men, Jesus says, went up into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this lousy Republican. I mean, publican over here. I, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Can I tell you something? This guy was a religious jerk. I think far too many Christian churches, Baptist churches just like ours, are filled up with Christian jerks. Do you know what I do? God doesn't care what you do. He cares what you do with what he did. And the publican standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes into heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And just in case we didn't get the picture, Jesus gives us the context. I tell you, this man went down to his house. What is the word that Jesus uses? Justified. He's just with God. Now, if we went back and wanted to reread Romans 3, we would find that Jesus is the just justifier. Ethan and I had a great time with that on Sunday, just four J or on Friday, four J's. Jesus, the just justifier for justification. You can remember it all if you can remember that. I tell you, this man went down to his, his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased. And he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. It's interesting as we go to prayer, the publican did not deny his guilt. He did not offer something from his own hand. No. He pleaded the mercy and the mercy seat of God as his atonement. His dependence was on the blood that would be offered for him, not what he could offer to God. And when we commune as a church, when we go out into the world after this evening and take the message of the hope of the good news of Jesus Christ, we take it knowing we are nothing, but he is everything. We claim God's propitiate, as we might say, blood, knowing he is merciful. We submit ourselves to His atoning work. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. 
Let's take a few moments to just pray, considering who Christ is and what Christ has done.